song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is How Wrestling Explains. Pretty out there episode today, Dave. Oh, totally trippendicular. Uh, one of the kind of the definitive psychedelic movies. We have Yellow Submarine, a movie that I grew up with. I think I saw this movie for the first time when I was uh, eight or nine. Our sponsor, uh, Michael Montalvo, who uh, is the one who chose the BWO topic. I know it's a movie he grew up with as well. We watched it together like many, many times when we were, I would say, between the ages of, I don't know, like 10 and 14 or 15. It was definitely one of those things in the kind of like regular sleepover rotations of movies that you watched. Uh, but but I, I'm extra excited to talk about it with you because on the other hand, I know that this is a movie that you were discovering for the first time specifically to do the show. Yeah, which was an interesting way to come to it because like uh, I also didn't, my parents are a little younger than your parents. So they grew up a little bit after like the Beatles were big and both of my parents were really into hard rock. So they didn't like the Beatles. I was not familiar with the Beatles music until I was, I think, older than you were. Uh, like, when did you start listening to the Beatles or heard your first Beatles song, like, normally in the course of a day? I think I first became aware of the Beatles through this movie, actually. I think that it was just in, like, the animation section of the video store that was near us. And I think I just, like, brought it up to my parents one Friday, just being like, oh, can I read this movie for the weekend? And I think, like, I think I did come to the Beatles through this movie when I was, like, eight or ten. I mean, I think I, like... I, I fell in love with this movie, and then I think for either a birthday or a Christmas, uh, my mom gave me, I remember it was the first CD I ever had, it was a Beatles Greatest Hits CD. I had plenty of tapes, but th- that was the first CD. Yeah, I was like 14 when I started listening to the Beatles, and my mom actively discouraged it, or was like, oh, I really don't like, not discouraged it, my mom never discouraged me from really doing anything, but like, was like, oh, I don't really like them. Like, don't make me listen to them in the car. That's all I care about. I was like, oh, okay. Like, it was the first time my mom, like, rebelled against me in terms of something I liked. But, like, it didn't stop me. She wasn't, like, offended by it. She was just like, I'm not into that kind of music. So, like, for me, the Beatles was something I always came to late. And as I have mentioned many times in the show, I only watch specific movies. Uh, I, I took a film class and I think it ruined movies for me. I only can watch movies academically. And this was a fun one to watch academically, especially in light of, or not academically, but like critically, like thinking about the movie and not just fading into the background. Uh, What I really like is in the context of last week's conversation about the BWO, how much this movie understands the audience it's written for. Yeah, as you alluded to earlier, uh, my parents are a little older. Uh, they're, they're kind of first wave baby boomers, literally born in 46. And I don't think that any movie has ever been for its audience more than this movie is for white early baby boomers who are into psychedelics and aware of emerging art movements. You know what I mean? Like this is a movie for a specific audience. It's broad in that it's the Beatles. But I think if you're watching it on, as you just kind of said, like the critical level, like it's it's very clearly speaking to a certain audience of of the kind of hippie folks who who thought that they were very woke at the time, but by the standards of today still fall well short. Like it's very much for that crowd of, of late 60s folks. Yeah. And I feel like with the BWO, you get it got both the inside people, the people that felt like, oh, man, we get the joke. 
and people who just like that it was a joke. The people who liked ECW either and like the BWO usually became Chikara fans. Like those are the type of people that were into the BWO. And I don't mean that as a knock. I like Chikara. That's the type of promotion you would be interested in if you were interested in the BWO as a person who just liked that it was funny and like they seemed to be enjoying themselves as opposed to being like, oh, it's inside. That guy's supposed to be a parody of blah. Do you know what I'm saying? The one insight that I, I, I will bring to this from my mother uh, is that, like one of the things that she always says that's interesting to her about this movie to her by the time the movie came out, it was already culturally a little dated. The movie very much portray, portrays like the idealism of 65 through 67 or so. But the movie was kind of coming out in a world where like the politics of the band were really shifting. The optimistic, idealistic part of the 60s was ending and the kind of darker, less optimistic vibe of the, the very end of the 60s through the 70s was beginning. So I, I think it's kind of a fascinating movie in that regard as well. You saying that reminds me of uh, the Daria episode where her dad talks about going to Altamont. <laughs> like, Altamont. Terrible tragedy. But I demanded my money back and I got it. Wasn't Altamont free? <laughs> That's the same line they tried to use on me. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, true story, my dad and um, Gary, my godfather, had tickets to Altamont, but they decided not to go uh, when they found out about the whole Hells Angels doing the security thing. I think part of the reason it works in the sense of it being kind of both timeless and very of a time, because it felt timeless to me. It didn't feel, I should say that. I shouldn't just feel like it, it's timeless, but I think it is. I think it's fair. Is it fair to say Yellow Submarine is a timeless classic of a animation at the very least? Uh, yeah, with all those qualifiers, I would say so. I think it's a movie that like, if you're into movies and you're into music, you should watch this movie at least once. It's one of those. It's an essential viewing for that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I think what works for it is is that it's not it's both the Beatles and not the Beatles like it is uh, both in the sense that the uh Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band who you meet at the beginning of the movie uh is clearly like they're doppelgangers more or less for uh the Beatles especially they literally, they literally look like they're wearing party store hair and wigs yeah and then at the end of the movie spoiler alert they take off all that crap and it, they are literally just mirror images of each other with like mirror mirror images i guess you would say because they all have beards uh yeah it's like a star trek yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> and the way that the animation style of the time works it's very um it's it's almost practical magic in the way that like Jurassic Park or Star Wars, the original Star Wars movies are where part of the che not cheapness, but the, the use of practical animation techniques at the time, almost like rotoscoping, especially in the dance sequences. For me, they, they kind of make it feel that they're so of the time. It kind of like represents fully this, like you said, this period from like 1965, 64, 65 to right before the world set on fire in 68. Like it does actually capture that really well. I feel like the ending of the movie, it literally is like an affirmation of flower power. I mean, spoiler alert, but like literally when the villain is defeated, like flowers spring out of the top of his head. So like I said at the beginning, it, like it is, it's not just a light movie. It is an actively optimistic, life-affirming movie that's trying to be optimistic and life-affirming 
in the way that like the grand Hollywood musicals of the golden age of musicals were. I think that the movie is ambitious in, in that regard, but on the other hand, it still just like got this very accessible, very like poppy aesthetic to it. Like, I don't want to call it, I don't want to call it like a perfect movie because like, I don't think it's like saying anything that's super duper important. Maybe we can talk some more about that later, but at the same time, I think it does a great job being something artistic, but still also something very accessible. They do a very good job. And this is definitely something that the BWO does of having you understand that you're watching quote unquote, Paul play quote unquote, quote unquote, Paul in a movie. Like it's not Paul McCartney's voice. Right. And it's not Paul McCartney. It's not a documentary. It's a caricature of Paul played by someone who's playing Paul McCartney's caricature. Like it, it really, in the same way that like you're watching a guy play Blue Meanie and watching the Blue Meanie play the Blue Guy, does that or do I sound crazy right now? No, not at all. The the comparison that came to my mind when you started saying those is it's like Fear and Loathing. It's like Johnny Depp playing Raoul Duke, and Raoul Duke is like almost Hunter S. Thompson, but at the same time, it's like important to the movie that he's not. You know what? Like it's like that Paul in this movie is Paul, but Paul is the Paul character. Paul is like the boy band, super baby-faced, so cute that you want to take him home to your mom character throughout the movie. Like all the Beatles, just like any, like just like One Direction or Backstreet Boys or like name your boy band, they had their character types. And I think that in the movie, they play those types or the voice actors play those types more so than they play who the Beatles actually are. They're kind of, they play them as this quirky group of, of Liverpudlians because they, they have these great, very broad Scouse accents throughout the whole movie, which is one of my favorite bits of it because like my grandfather talked that way. So like when I was growing up, I didn't get that that was a funny accent because that's how my grandfather talked. So, so rewatching the movie as an adult, it, 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 it made me, I, I was hearing some of those, uh, some of those phonemes that, <laughs> that, that my grandfather used to speak in. But yeah, I hear you where it's like, they're not playing Paul, George, uh, Ringo, and John in as much as they're playing psychedelic cartoon character versions of the types that those people represent within the manufactured concept of a boy band. Yeah, it's fucked up man like it is real and it's it, it feels i'm not comparing the two because obviously yellow submarine is one of like the seminal pieces of art of the last 50 years and bwo is not but like i you get that that like mind fuckery watching this the same way you do watch, watching the tag team match we talked about during the bwo essential viewing against them and the fbi where this thing that's done really well that's making fun of this other thing but making fun of it so well that it becomes a better version of the thing it's making fun of which is like for me this is a disney movie musical but done by the beatles and their uh, like heinz edelman and stuff like you know what i'm saying the guy who did the design immediately contrasted this with like ralph bakshi who i've brought up a bunch on here before who did like the fritz the cat movie and i guess wizards is probably the the biggest most accessible one that people really know but like this is definitely an adult animation aesthetic that works and is accessible like i said and that i could have also watched as a kid and like the movie wasn't 
over my head in any fundamental ways. There wasn't any like dirty secret that I like wasn't getting. And I think that's one of the things that's so cool about the style of this movie. It has this really like broad for everyone appeal in, in the same way that those kind of golden age Hollywood musicals had, as opposed to like the Ralph Bakshi style, which is like super violent and super sexual and maybe speaks more to some of that kind of like dark, like late sixties, early seventies stuff. But, but, but yeah, at any rate, I, I definitely agree with you that I think that the, the movie comes together in a way that, that, presents presents things in a way that is both artistic but in a casual way that just invites you to like sit down and watch it and i feel like there's there's too few movies that that, that blend those things and i think part of the big reason it feels so seamless when you go from experimental to non-experiment like because there's very straightforward sequences in this movie that are interspersed with these super psychedelic like wild like white white and black lines flowing and in the middle is a red and green block box that's like flickering like straight up experimental animation but a lot of the things that get you to that experimental animation are Ringo it's Ringo just being Ringo and getting into Ringo things and he ends up like figuring out how to get the Lonely Hearts Club band out of the glass bowl that the Blue Meanies put him in at the beginning, put them in at the beginning of the movie uh, using a hole that he found that he had in his pocket from the sea of holes, which he picks up and messes around with and goes, oh, I got that hole in my pocket. Uh, sorry, that is the worst. <laughs> Liverpool. If you, were, if, if you would say me pocket. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Um, and then uh, and then he steps into the green hole and it becomes it goes from the sea of holes to the sea of green like he does he is the one that falls out of the yellow submarine into the sea of monsters like he is the person that you kind of follow from the very beginning right yeah definitely i mean we talked about like the bwo is these sort of transformative everyman where they literally changed wrestling because they felt so similar to the people who were in the stands, whereas like much of the illusion of wrestling had been about differentiating the people in the ring from the people in the stands. And like Ringo is totally an every man character. He is in all the Beatles movies. It's like a thread in like Hard Day's Night. Uh, he's, he's portrayed as like a little dim, but in just like a cute, normal working class guy way. And then in Help, he he has sent a mail he has sent a ring in the mail and when he puts the ring on he is marked to be uh to be sacrificed by this cult so like that's the whole premise of the the second beatles movie help but like he always played these kind of dumb slightly bumbling but kind of sweet everyman characters and it really stands out in this movie because what's so interesting is it at the beginning, so when, when the captain comes in the yellow submarine from Pepperland to get the help of the Beatles to, to save Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and restore the order, etc., etc. Because the Blue Meanies attacked Pepperland, which is where they're from. Sorry, continue. Right, exactly. Thank you. No, thank you. Uh, so uh, he, but, but the captain first meets Ringo, and Ringo has to go to the house where the other Beatles live to like convince them to come. And the contrast is incredible that, like I said, the other three guys are these sort of cartoon boy band celebrities, like, or, or are so wrapped up in their character, like George is immersed in this, in this like deep trippy meditation and stuff when they like open his bedroom door, like 
All of them are these like larger than life figures. Uh, John, Paul and George are that is. But then Ringo is like totally normal and grounds everything in the movie. But like you said, at the same time, ties together a lot of those plot elements. Like the movie's really loose. And anytime they need something to happen, it's like, oh, just Ringo just walks across the, the screen and does whatever needs to be done. <laughs> Ringo, or I guess I should say the character of Ringo is really magnetic in his simple cleverness i guess i guess would be the best way to just like he is not a like savant he's more of just like a guy who stumbles into saying not like doing smart things does that like the like i said at the oh definitely he also does the thing in this movie where like he mumbles under his breath asides just as much as he speaks dialogue to the other characters like the other characters mostly speak amongst themselves, and he mostly speaks to himself slash the audience directly. They're, they're, he's clearly set apart in all these different ways. Yeah, yeah, he's us. You want to see like him and the Beatles be successful in their quest to do this thing. Uh, and there are reasons for it that aren't the Beatles, but a lot of it is the Beatles. Like, I don't think he would be as interested in a movie with just Sergeant Pepper. Like... Huh. You mean you mean the Bee Gees? <laughs> the following announcement has been You wanna know something, brother? Over the last week or two, the Twitter followers have been exploding over at HWETW Pod, and the YouTube views have been blasting off at how wrestling explains the world on YouTube, brother, but we still got some work to do. I'm known as a fella who loves to celebrate Jack. You know deep down I want to pose and cut my ear just as bad as you little explainomaniacs want to see it. But you see, little splainsters, we got a problem, dude. If we're going to spread the word, grow the brand, and build an army, daddy, we need the power of the Explainomaniacs to burst forth in exaltation of the greatness, brother. What I need is for each and every one of you little Explainomaniacs to get out your mobile devices, dude. Navigate to How Wrestling Explains on iTunes, pod jack. Then drop a five-star review like the world's heaviest leg and help HWETW run wild all over the internet. Your five-star review helps connect us with new listeners, build the HWE brand, and flex the 24-inch pythons for potential advertisers, brothers. This is where the power of Explainomania lies, little Explainomaniacs, in your own hands. And in order for Explainomania to keep on rumbling into Q2 of 219, we need your support. Rate and review before the rage of Explainomania runs wild on you. And I think with the the boy band aspect, they're framed as the people, though it is to save Pepperland and their doppelgangers and bring back music from Blue Meanies who are basically fascists. We root for them to be the ones that succeed in a way that you wouldn't, if Sergeant Pepper was the only person in the movie, you wouldn't want to watch it in the same way it's like not as good a movie it's not as interesting a story because we love these characters and they're the protagonists and and with the that's clearly defined both inherently from the beatles but from the storyline where it's established basically from the get-go that uh the music that music brings people together and that the blue meanies hate music and that makes them in for for about that and a bunch of other reasons makes them the bad people and probably bad people and definitely the antagonists in this specific story 
Yeah, definitely. Saying what you were just to speak to what you were just saying a minute ago, I think it is in some ways like a hangout movie where you're invited to hang out with who you imagine the Beatles are. Like that's what a lot of the belly of the movie is, like when they're actually in the submarine and stuff, going through all the different levels, kind of all the different dimensions of the undersea worlds and stuff. Like all of that is just like fun visuals and them saying things that they they would say and being cute in the ways that like they were cute. Like the Beatles were witty guys that was like part of the character i guess it's kind of lost today like in the way that that i mean they helped kind of define the whole way that pop musicians are like media celebrities and part of that was the the sense of humor but i think that speaks as you were saying to the but with it being kind of a hangout movie it's like yeah what are the heels the heels are people who hate fun and that like goes back to what we were talking about last week with raven or or some of the stuff that we've talked about in the past with like Stephanie and the authority that the, the 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 bad guys in this movie are fascists as you say but like more directly in the movie the problem is that they like hate fun they're these just like cartoonishly one dimensional one dimensional wicked people who just want happy dancing people to be sad and be frozen so that they can't dance like once again there's this like mid 60s simplicity to it of like, yeah, there's good people and there's bad people. And like, wouldn't the world be better if we could like stick flowers and all the bad people's guns? Like, <laughs> that's definitely something going on here. But I also think, as you said, there's like multiple different kinds of, of villainous characters in this movie. And I think they're all interesting in kind of different, unique ways. They very clearly and symbolically identify the heels in this movie. Them being blue and wanting the world to be blue, which seems a little on the nose, just a bit. That they are kind of over the top uh, a feat. Would that be a word to use to describe them or is that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a word that definitely works. I mean, the 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 chief blue meanie and Max, who is his kind of like a flunky, uh, they they both have these kind of high affected voices. Um, like the, the chief blue meanie is kind of high and nasal, almost in the way that like the, the monarch is in Venture Brothers, kind of a similar voice. I'm not gonna flush. Let them see the wrath of the monarch. And like Max is doing like a John Cleese Spanish accent. I am Italian. Sono italiano in spirito, ma ho esposato una donna che preferisce lavorare in un giardino a far l'amore passionato un spallo grande. So there is this kind of like high, affected, kind of effeminate thing going on. And like you said, they wear these like sexy boots in spite of the fact that they're like scary bad guys. There's definitely some sort of play going on in the movie with like gender and sexuality but it's hard to figure out if they're actually saying anything or it's just like the the characters talk that way because it's funny you know what i mean i think it's partially that it's funny but i think they're also supposed to be framed and not to get to film theory but like they're framed pretty explicitly as repressed like the music thing in particular just hating music but the the song that gets the Beatles over is all you need is love. Like they're very explicit with like, no. Uh, and the second that um, Jeremy, the, the nowhere man, 
the the nowhere man is like a genius character he's like a mr mixelplex but for the side of good and he uses a transformation spell basically on blue meanie that uh starts growing flowers out of him like you said literally like planting flowers in the guns of fascists and that's where he gets the change of heart and i think it's implied that they're the blue meanies aren't inherently bad they're repressed and i think that's where it comes from but i think that the coding at the time was to code them as uh, as at the very least transgressive if not like implicitly queer yeah yeah and and as you said i think maybe there is a something to be said about maybe the closetedness the 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 repressedness of of the whole enterprise i hadn't thought of it that way until you said it and then it's like oh yeah that's what it is that makes sense to me now yeah um (laughs) no and it's also their english uh as as an english person i feel comfortable saying that (laughs) and in irish it's a lot of fun it's like you don't talk about anything at all you just stare at each other and drink uh And I think that this movie trades a lot in the explicitness of its underlying, I know that sounds weird, uh, the explicitness of its underlying themes without ever addressing them specifically, which is the most wrestling thing I can think of in like a meta sense. Like just everything is a reference to something, especially ECW, of like the meanies, the lesser meanies, the non-main meanie, not the big blue meanie, uh, are all, all, I think all of them have Mickey Mouse ears. Like it's, they're kind of trying to say something, I think about the cultural over takeover of Disney, the Disneyfication, something we've talked about a bunch on this show, of stories in the post-war world. That Disney, in particular, using animation, and this is an interesting animated movie because it's made not just for kids, that Disneyfication is something that I think this movie, I don't want to say it's pushing against, but it's making reference to, at the very least. And that's a very wrestling thing, like having explicit references to characters or performers or th- ideas outside of wrestling in a way that you kind of f- like are explicitly leaning on without actually ever coming out. I-, I guess implicitly leaning on without ever coming out and actually saying this is what we're referencing. Yeah, certainly. And I think you kind of so you spoke to it a minute ago where you said that the movie is in some fundamental ways very english or at least very not american and i think that that is one of the the ways in which that is true that the movie the movie in fact is is so explicit it's beating you over the head with things like you said literally them being like the blue meanies and stuff like that like there's some parts of it that are very transparent but there's other things that they just like leave there and walk away from and like, and and in that way, I think the movie is quote unquote artistic in the way that artistry is generally missing from Disney-fied stories, where like everything is really tidy, and you know, and everything is really tidy in this movie. Like they save the day in exactly the way they've been supposed to save the day from the very beginning. You know what I mean? Like it's a very tidy movie, but like if you go back and watch this movie multiple times, or if you're really thinking as you go. There's just certain like breadcrumbs that are dropped along the way or certain elements that like when you go back and think about it, you're like, well, wait a minute. That like, so, so one I was just thinking about is there, there's a point where the, the chief blue meanie is with Max, the flunky, and 
he says, uh, he says, listen, Max, the hills are alive. And, and, and Max says, with the sound of music, like he sings it. And it's like, that's a really interesting thing in the movie because like the blue Meanies is supposed to hate music. And this character who's like the assistant to the chief, he just showed that he like has knowledge of popular Broadway musicals, like, and that he has a love of music and that like, he just made a musical joke. And it's like, that's just like a very small, simple little like one-liner that's just like an illusion for laughs in the theater. But like at the same time, it's, it's, it's saying so much about the, the world of the movie, not just the world of the movie, but the viewpoint of the movie and like what it means to, to be a really like a, a bad person. Cause I think once again, at the end of the movie, when we see the transformation of the blue meanie, we don't just have like the villain is defeated. We have the villain isn't a problem at all. In fact, now the villain's the nicest guy in the world because we've shown him the light. So like on one hand, the movie wraps up really, really neatly. But like on the other hand, there's just all these little pokey bits that when you run your hand over it, they they catch a little bit, you know? Dude, uh, I, I normally don't drop it a dude, but dude, I was thinking about, it's not edgy. It's like parts are jagged does that make sense like part they want some parts to like sink in and other parts to run smoothly and i i think that's what's really like also it's blissfully short it is yeah it is 90 minutes it is exactly as long as anything other than like a shakespearean drama or like the the world's most impressive space opera should be it is the length a light movie should be in the the show notes, uh, you wrote, "When I'm 64" is a memorable sequence and a great song, but it adds nothing to the movie. And I thought about it, and I was like, "Gonna write like, no, it's really great." And I was like, "Oh, you mentioned that it's really great, and it's a fun sequence, but it doesn't." They're going through the sea of time at that point, and they're going shifting back and forth from being very young to very old, or very old to very young, and then back to normal, I believe. Uh, and that is like my favorite sequence in the movie, but it's completely pointless. It reminds me a lot of like the Osprey, the Will Osprey ricochet style matches where they don't necessarily need to exist, but the fact that they exist kind of shows the breadth of the, like the edges of the form in terms of like uh, expressing yourself through this medium. Uh, and something you've, you said to me a while ago, like I'm talking like, sophomore maybe junior year of college so like almost like 13 14 years ago was i was thinking of writing a cartoon and you said only do a cartoon if you can't think of another medium that would better serve it and like this movie is best served by being a cartoon in a lot of ways but sequences like that are part of like that's the purpose they they in they like speak for themselves in terms of the artistry without needing to speak to a larger part of like what wrestling or animation supposed to be or the movie supposed to be they're just like a fun thing that's super enjoyable and you can watch it and enjoy yourself and appreciate the artistry and the craftsmanship involved yeah definitely like i said at the beginning i think i think this movie is like made for for late 60s people who went to college like it's it's for people who have awareness of like literary structure and Campbell and all the other crap that I like to talk about and I think that 
we we see that in Yellow Submarine in the sequence where they're moving through all the different seas. Like there's the Sea of Time where they do When I'm 64. Um, there's the Sea of Science where they do Only a Northern Song, which is probably the trippiest thing in the movie. Like that's probably the peak of the weirdness of the movie. Is is that the one with the Marilyn Monroe trip, the, the like Marilyn trip dick style Andy Warhol? Yeah, their faces are superimposed metallically like over the screen for a second. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like there's only a Northern song and that's kind of the peak of, of weirdness in the movie. And then they go through all these weird standalone sequence. And then like you say, they meet the Nowhere Man and then they get to Pepperland. But it's almost a commentary for people who are aware of narrative structure of this idea of like, okay, we've got this great idea. There's the call to adventure and then all the characters get together and they're on the journey. Uh, and then a bunch of stuff happens in the middle. It doesn't really matter. It's just fun stuff. And then they get to the place where the where the ordeal is going to take place, so to speak. But like, but they're like, ah, you know, there's some rising action. There's some scenes where weird stuff happens. And, and that's one of the things I really like about the movie because the those those kind of self contained music video esque parts in the middle, like they're they're just unapologetic. They're presented to you straight up, and they're like, I don't know. You figure out how this is really connected to the plot. So like I said, they're both very artistic, but they're in that respect, but there's almost this like parody of narrative structure going on, which I really, which I really love, especially when you're making a musical, because it's like, at least for my money, it's like a lot of musicals fall apart in the plotting that like they get two thirds of the like guys and dolls, they get two thirds of the way through the story. And then in the final third, all the characters start acting completely contrary to their established characters in order for them to get to resolution. You know what I mean? But like, it's like they're making fun of that in this movie. And that's one of the things I love. Yeah, it's uh, we talked about the Music Man in a previous episode, and that movie is saved from third act problems, as the kids call it, by the introduction of a character that you meet at the be- a reintroduction of a character you meet at the beginning of the movie, who's coming to expose Harold Hill. Like you have to reintroduce or introduce a completely different element because so much of the fun of musicals is seeing the ways in which they'll integrate the new songs that you've never heard before into a story you probably have. And that's something that Yellow Submarine does exceptionally well because it doesn't care to do that. It just, it literally, it's a jukebox musical uh, is what they call it now. Like uh, Mamma Mia is the, the, probably the quintessential example of the modern age where it is just a musical that gets you to a song or a series of songs written by specific artists. It's very simple. That's all it is. And this is an example of like a prototype version of that. And obviously you had movie tie-ins to like Elvis and stuff like that, where he sang songs, but that's different than having a full catalog and going, here's a movie where we use all the songs from this album. And I think in that way, it really, it can be unapologetic with the transforming, the transforming of normal mundane trials of a hero sequences into excuses to play a song. And I I feel like for this movie, they actually are allowed to, because they didn't eat up a bunch of time or narrative. uh, I'm trying to think narrative leverage, I guess you would call it in the middle. They're allowed to actually have an interesting sequence in the third the third the last third of the movie because they haven't just made you tired of these people like you had fun with them you sang a bunch of songs and now they're actually going to do a fun thing where they're interacting with the people that you don't like yeah you're excited for them to get to pepperland you're excited for them to interact with the blue meanie because 
The movie does a nice job throughout kind of cross-cutting back to, to checking in with the Blue Meanie and Max. So you, you do build anticipation for all the characters to metaphorically get into the same room. They definitely do a good job. And they also do a good job at the beginning of the movie, like the opening 30 seconds of just giving you a sense of what Pepperland is like. Yes. They don't, they don't have that long expositional period where they tell you too much. You're like legitimately excited for the main characters to get to the place. Yeah, there it is. Like I, I said earlier, the animation is very jarringly different than what you're used to now, but not in a bad way, in a way that I feel like they really pushed the edges of experimental animation for the time because you have to remember they didn't have digital they couldn't just fix shit on a computer they had to like paint individual i'm pretty sure having watched it and understanding a little bit about film technique it looks as though they painted the frames for some of the individual sequences like it is really crazy the amount of work that's involved in this and you can see it in the especially in the psychedelic sequences that feel so far out of that like so far ahead of the rest of the animation, it, but it doesn't ruin the movie. It adds to it because you can see that they're trying and thought has been put into the overall presentation of the story in a way that like really allows you. And part of it is that it's a Beatles movie. And although they are not super involved in it, it's a Beatles movie and they have built such a trust with their audience. And that's something I think that wrestling can learn from is, is if you have a cachet of trust with your audience, you can do interesting experimental things to further the story that you're trying to tell. And I feel like larger companies, more so than smaller companies for obvious reasons, are more hesitant to do that where making weird stuff happening to tell your story as long as it doesn't break your world is fine and i feel like yellow submarine has the advantage of being a psychedelic cartoon movie but it doesn't ever betray betray that it becomes something it's not it always stays within this like simple story told through interesting animation about four people we like and people the kind of people that we don't yeah i think that cashing in built up equity is something that wrestling has gotten kind of worse at over the last 25 years like quietly like obviously i was not i was not around in the in the like days of kayfabe in like the 70s and 80s but certainly part of the mythology of wrestling both from like the wrestler's perspective but also from the fan perspective is that in in, in like when you hear some of the older uh more uh, crotchety thought leaders like this is this is some of the stuff that they that they'll say a lot is that the audience had tremendous trust in the promotions both as as sources of like like WWE it's all about you know we we bring you the entertainment quote unquote but in the in the 60s and 70s and 80s the promoters had also built up the image that they were pillars of the community, whether it was like Vern Gagne or, uh, you know, whether it was Paul Bosch in Houston or, or whoever, like P the, the promoters and the promotions by extension were, were considered like cornerstones of the community. And I think for whatever reason, ever since the national unification of wrestling under Vince McMahon, that's something that they've 
fought back to try to get. And that's something that the Beatles definitely had <laughs> to, to connect it all the way back to the movie. Just saying, but like that kind of stored up equity. Like you said, the Beatles aren't in the movie. Well, I shouldn't say that. They're in the last 10 seconds of the movie. They pop up in live action just before we cut to credits to say like, oh, that movie was fine. Ha ha ha. And then uh, they, they make a couple of in-jokes as if they were the characters in the movie. Ringo repeats the line about having a hole in his pocket. And it's like, cut to credits. That's the end of the show. Can you imagine WWE pulling something so successfully off like that? Like if they told you that you were going to see the stars of the WWE and you just saw 205 Live Guys for the whole show. And then like after the show came off air, like Brock Lesnar and Finn Balor came out and did the dark main event. And that was okay. And people loved it. Like, can you imagine that working? It's just hilarious to me how far the wrestling business has strayed in terms of just completely losing just all the all the equity and goodness and willingness of people to to go along with things. And that's something that's really specifically noticeable in the ways in which they, outside of Brock Lesnar, everybody wrestles basically every show. And that sounds like it's a good idea, but... It's it, it dries out the specialness of the characters, and that's something you don't see in territorial wrestling for a bunch of different reasons. And obviously, they're going town to town and working every night. So I'm not acting like they're not doing a job, they're not doing their job or a job. But there's this idea um, that people wrestle too fucking much, right, Dave? <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, especially the 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 main events, like the whole idea of being a main event, and like people throw around words like "quote unquote" protected, and I don't think they like really know what those things mean, like what it really means to keep someone special. Because over the last at least ten years, like other than the "quote unquote" you know part timer WrestleMania crew, as you say, like everybody of substance who has a push is on every show, and it's. It's ironic to me because um, Wade Keller of the Pro Wrestling Torch used to frequently, uh, he might still, I just haven't subscribed for a couple of years, <laughs> but he at least used to frequently tell the story that in like uh, 95, 96, he was getting calls from Vince and Vince was, was telling him, you need to be keeping your eyes on Ted Turner's unfair business practices. And one of the things that McMahon was supposedly calling Meltzer and Keller and, and telling them specifically, he wanted them to report on was the fact that WCW was using pay-per-view main events for television. Back in like 95, 90, so back in like the early Nitro era, that was one of Vince's main concerns, was that Eric Bischoff and WCW were starting to burn out main events. And it's like, well, obviously, <laughs> obviously he was right. You know what I mean? Like 20 years later, I think that, or 20 plus years later now, it seems that like he knew what was gonna happen that he was gonna have to start because like when you watch the first i'll say the first season the first year or so of raw raw was masterful like people always talk about that perfect flair main event the loser leave town match or like that's the only match for the first like two years <laughs> yeah that and like marty versus sean those are like the the two matches <laughs> that and even the big matches are like Razor Ramon versus One Two Three Kid, where the whole thing is that it's an unexpected, yeah, angle. it's an angle exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's the number one reason why they can't get away with what the Beatles did in Yellow Submarine. But here's the thing: 
I don't know how to put this. They should be able to get away with that shit. Like I, I, we have, or that's the wrong way to put it. They have set the expectations so high in terms of you get to see stars every night, the entertainers and put smiles on faces that they can no longer justify not having anyone other than someone like Brock Lesnar on the show every night. Uh, and they they want like actual time on television. It's not just like Hogan showing up to do a promo and then heading out. It's real time on television. The only people that get treated like stars are the stars that are bigger than the WWE. And people notice that. And I think that if you reprogrammed fans to expect good quality matches like you got in the 80s, but without having the stars of the promotion on every single night wrestling 15 to 20 minutes, you could get away with telling the kind of stories that you're talking about where you have like the 205 guys take over raw for a night or NXT take over raw for a night and have an experimental style show, but they can't do that because they set the expectation. You're going to see Finn Balor and not Baron Corbin, uh, Braun Strowman. <laughs> nobody wants, nobody likes Millhouse. <laughs> but that's the, that's one of the main problems. And I think SmackDown does a good job, uh, of balancing that than a better job of balancing that than raw, but both, especially in WWE, both the shows struggle with that. They have never really learned how to let your audience expect the weird music video shit of the music, the equivalent of the weird music video shit from yellow submarine where it's like, that's not a movie scene. That's a music video. Like that's cool. It's a cool music video, but it's not necessarily like propelling the storyline forward. And people would be okay with that. If you actually gave them the understanding that they can't expect the biggest star on every single show every night, that just can't be how, sports work like people need to rest and like made be made special it's not especially not how fight sports work where you're only working like one or two matches a year now like it's not how this stuff is supposed to quote unquote work in terms of building stars and building equity in those stars because here's the thing seth rollins is one of the best wrestlers of his generation if he wrestles 20 matches on television at the beginning for the first 23 episodes of raw, like two of those are going to be stinkers probably just by like the law of averages where if you had him work five matches or six matches or a match every two weeks, even had it be 10 matches, the, the, like the likelihood of him having one half of a half of a bad match is there, but it's not nearly as high as having trotting him out there every week and hoping he strikes gold every single time, especially when you have him work like a hour long match, what is he supposed to do the next week? Work two hours? Yeah, I, I think it comes back to, and I'll reference Wade Keller again, uh, but I, not because I get all my opinions from him, but because I think he's a smart guy and I think he brings up a lot of good points. He's a keen observer of wrestling and has been for a long time. But he always says that like one, or once again, he, he said, he used to say these things frequently. I haven't subscribed for a couple of years. Uh, but one of the points that he used to make frequently was like one of, the real turning points in the WWE was whenever it was like 2010 or 2012, when they had John Cena go out there, it was the first time he was feuding with the rock, whatever year that was. Uh, when John Cena went out there and cut the promo about it's our job to entertain you every night. And like, even if that's true, 
that's something that you shouldn't tell the audience because then you get into the territory that you always talk about, Nick, where there's this feeling of like ownership and entitlement on the part of the audience. And I think that at least over the last, like I said, five-ish years, I think that happened around 2010, 2012, maybe that I'm talking about, but like that, that you, you've changed the rules in a way that ties your own hands and makes it harder for you to bring the audience on a journey with you. You know what I mean? Where it's like, you should be depicting competence and like you should be giving the people what they want enough of the time that they stay super engaged, but also stringing them along in a way that still also keeps them super engaged. But when you say our goal is to entertain you each and every night, then you open the door for people saying, well, how come, how come we didn't see Finn Balor? I paid to go to Raw tonight and Finn Balor, you, you said on the Titan Tron that Finn Balor is going to be in the main event next week. What about this week? Why do I only get to see the pre-take promo for Finn Balor? And those people go, go on social media and are sour and th that message spreads. And we've seen over the last couple of years that that's something WWE is really scared of is that, that negative that that negative sort of undercurrent of every time it starts to bubble up we see either these corrective actions or these these knee jerks and i think that 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 they that's partially a self-created problem when you say we are gonna entertain the shit out of you every single night and that's something that like the beatles don't make that mistake like the, and this movie doesn't make that mistake like we said the movie presents the story, it presents the visuals, it presents the music and says, here they all are. And there's not a lot of like telling you how to feel or telling you that you should think it's great or anything like that. Like it's like, they just leave it there and leave it for you to interpret. But when you put something in front of somebody, like if I cooked you dinner, Nick, and I said, this is gonna be the best steak you've ever had. And every night for the rest of your life, I'm gonna cook you the best steak you've ever had. Like I'm, not only setting you up for disappointment, I'm setting up you to be really mad at me for something that, like you said, law of averages, it could have just been a tough piece of steak. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, Yeah, no, there, there, you are rolling the, die, the dice too many times with the way that it's currently structured. And I know it sounds like a stretch to compare this to the Beatles, but the Beatles stopped doing live shows fairly, like, obviously not the beginning of their career, but they stopped doing live shows about halfway through their run. They understood that part of their specialness goes away when you're forced to watch them with 100,000 screaming people and you can't actually hear them. That, like, so, funny story, my parents, or at least my mom I know, went to a Beatles concert at the Cow Palace in, I bet I could Google this, I think it was like 64-ish, and like that was her complaint was she said that she literally could not hear a single note that they played because the screaming was so bad. I think that there, there are these towering figures in the history of music because they understood their brand so well. On top of an immense pool of talent, they understood like we talked about earlier, the idea of being baby faces, of, of having different personalities and those personas, almost in a very wrestling sense, those personas being what they project out into the world in a way that is consistent with their outward appearance to the public, but not necessarily their interior lives per se. And I feel like because they have this understanding of the value of their themselves, 
it allows them to dole it out in ways that the audience, this is going to sound very weird in terms of what I believe the relationship between an artist and a fan should be, but that the fans are just appreciative that they're making shit. And I'm not saying the fans should just be grateful that the WWE exists. They shouldn't, they should expect more out of the WWE, but they should also understand, fans should also understand in general that you can expect gold every night you can just expect a competent show and you'll get a lot more gold out of that. Even if it's small, small amounts of gold, like grams of gold are still gold. Even if it's not the big nugget you were hoping for. And I feel like with the, with yellow submarine, their Beatles are in this movie a lot, but they're singing the songs that you've heard before. And that's fine. And it's awesome. But they don't try to treat it as though they never say, this is a movie where the Beatles are playing the Beatles and they're in the movie the entire time. And you're going to love it because it's a fucking Beatles fest. They're like, this is a movie based on an album made by the Beatles. These characters are obviously based on the Beatles, but they're not played by the Beatles. They're played by other people. They are basically doing a biopic of the Beatles if the biopic was them getting really high on the LSD. And one of my favorite things about the movie that I think WWE also suffers from sometimes is there's no like sense of insecurity here. Like the movie isn't sorry that the Beatles aren't voice acting the Beatles. They don't try to make it up to you in other ways by like distracting you, hey, over here. Like the movie just like, owns what it is and it's like yeah yeah these are voice actors it's not actually the Beatles in this movie but like that doesn't make the movie any less we're still really proud to present this movie to you and it still is whole and not any way impaired by the fact that it's slightly inauthentic this way and I think that WWE can either stumble either when they make a very slight substitution or a slight change to things or a tweak that people don't like and they either handle the way they like announce it or roll it out or they do something that's like totally fine and people people just reject it you know what i mean like even though but but i think that as you say i think that there needs to be some more of that willingness both for the fan to say it's okay the beatles aren't really the voice actors in this movie uh just like it's like it's okay that that isn't how i would have booked that finish but i think it needs to go both ways it's like i think that the the movie slash the promoters need to be like unapologetic about the things that are imperfect or about the things that aren't like, oh, I'm sorry that you didn't see Finn Balor tonight because he's going to be on Raw last week. Like they don't, they shouldn't be apologetic about that. And the fans shouldn't be so demanding about it. Like I think both sides of the equation need to, need to shift in their intensity in order for, in order for everybody to be enjoying the process more and, and the end results to really be maximized. Yeah, and on the promotion side of that, the f- promotion has to put out quality content, which I think you can argue WWE does. They just don't get their fans to expect. The amount of people that were like, Elimination Chamber was so much better than I thought it was going to be. I was like, why would you think it was going to be bad? Like, none of the matches on there are real shitters outside of maybe Ruby Riot and Ronda, and that was because it was they had a quick like job out match for Ruby. It wasn't like an actual bad match. Like I, I think there's this expectation that things are going to be shitty because the show around the wrestling is bad for, I think it's fair to say like Raw's not that great right now, but the wrestling itself is good in that in the same way that the music and the art and the art direction 
of Yellow Submarine is good. It's quality. It's high quality. It's extremely high quality. And it's very, like, the some of the most advanced, like, not most advanced, the most, like, uh, out there avant-garde stuff you're going to see in, anima- in popular animation. It's really, like, it really takes chances in a way that is you wish wrestling would. And I think that part of that would be like, like we were saying the movie isn't edgy, but there is a, like a, there's not a, not every part of it is smooth and like goes down easy. In particular, I think the, the blue meanies as fascists is a pretty rough go round when you really sit in it because the blue meanies are like, it adds to their cruelty in a way that we that we mentioned earlier that along with the and I, I said this earlier the Mickey Mouse ears really make you uncomfortable you get the feeling that they're trying to say something really dark about the role corporations and capitalism have in this idea of fascism that like part of the problem with music is that it like makes people like get together and care about each other. And that's bad basically. And, and, and you listen to like, uh, we haven't mentioned this. Eleanor Rigby is at the beginning of it. And Pepper world is distinct from the real world. Eleanor Rigby plays. Everybody's really upset. That's a really sad song. If you haven't heard it. Uh, and I feel like when they juxtapose that with Pepperland, you really get this idea of, obviously I just said there's music in Liverpool, but it's not a musical place in the way that Pepperland is. And I think they're basically, saying these motherfuckers want to turn Pepperland into like the shitty real world. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, like you said, there's the the Eleanor Rigby song is how they introduce the the world of like the real world, quote unquote, of England. And like a lot of that is there's a lot of black and white photography that's used as black drop backdrops or or black and white photography that's been kind of rotoscoped, like painted over. Um, there's a lot of that, that that's been used. But then when you get inside the house where the Beatles live, it's like their individual bedrooms are these like lands of uh, this land of color and like you said they have the 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 sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band or like their doppelgangers so it's almost this idea that like the beatles are from this other world this like magical plane and they are bringing the the kind of joyfulness of that other world to kind of drab england but at the same time there's like this conflict in pepperland like you said and i think it does kind of mirror now I, i my dad is from Wales and his parents were from England and Wales respectively. So I, I, I have like, I guess a, maybe a little bit more of a grip on this than, than a lot of American people. But I will say that there was a great sense in like the fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties, like right up through Margaret Thatcher, really Margaret Thatcher was elected as the result of this tension, but there definitely was great tension in England and great Britain about the idea of, like uh cultural traditions like the when when the sergeant pepper's only hearts club band when they're playing in pepperland at the beginning they're playing in this like old-fashioned english style bandstand like you would see in a park and like there there is something that like we have pepperland which is sort of a traditional genteel everybody's having picnics outside listening to the band in the park and then you have the blue meanies who are like mickey mouse you have this mass imported entertainment that's that's not English. Like that's one of, or at least like I said, it's it's changed a lot over the last 25 years. But even when I was 
growing up and, and watching a lot of British media because of my parents and grandparents, like the whole idea of something being not English in big quotation marks is like, was a, was an existentially threatening thing. And like, it's still a big cultural hangup. Cause like, think of Brexit, right? Like it's, it's, it's a cultural struggle that impulse or that the, the, the Great Britain was going through. And I think we see that in this movie that in some way there's this struggle between authentic, traditional English quote unquote entertainment and the, the outside invasion of things that are not English. Cause I mean like one of the different kinds of the blue meanie enemies is literally called the snapping Turks. And they wear these fezes like they're from like North Africa, but they've got these like huge monstrous snapping jaws in their big fat bloated bellies and they wear these like scimitars on their hips so like i think there definitely is something uh in the in the movie going on with with some of that tension that's being played out not necessarily that foreigners are bad but people who foreigners who work for capitalist intentions or corporate intentions more i think loosely because let's just say that the beatles were not huge fans of taxes like they weren't exactly for like a giant state mechanism that's why all of them live in the united states or lived <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like uh they go to the first song in revolver and then <laughs> uh but yeah i think they represent this like a progressive idea about the unifying power of music if not necessarily a multicultural community in the way that we think about it now but you can root for those guys and you can root against the like transgressive nazi types and i, I like there's literally a line in there where one of the blue meanie says are you bluish you don't look bluish which is like i think the edgiest joke in the film but it's very also very specifically supposed to point to you point to them as like proto-nationalists in a in a really explicit like you don't look like us we can't trust you we have to control you and dump i don't understand the apple metaphor totally because their their corporation was named apple but the use of apples as a way to like bury the the people in the grandstand area and to bury the uh mayor at the that you meet uh, that bring Sergeant Pepper to the yellow submarine so that he can get Ringo and bring back Ringo and the Beatles or to go get help basically. Yeah. He, they're all covered in, I think a metaphor for capitalism, but there's definitely this like weird tension between wanting to unify people through music and also to keep out dirty capitalists from other countries. Well, that reminds me of like one of the great rock album covers is like the who sell out where it's got like the can of beans on the front of it and stuff. You know what I mean? There, there is this kind of playfulness of like, yeah, fascism and capitalism are against our ideals, but at the same way, like when you've, when you've made it to the top of the world, this is how things work. You know, and that seems like definitely, especially in, in English or British rock and roll. I think that that was kind of a theme. The, I mean, even down, if you think into like the, the behind the music era of the late nineties, think of like green day or whatever. Like that's a big part of the narrative of, of music is that like your music has artistic value. And then at some point you quote unquote sell out. And that's when your money, or that's when your music becomes more important as a commodity than it is as art. And I think both with the who with their album cover and maybe that Apple metaphor in, in this movie, we, we kind of see some of the similar uh, sort of the, uh, sort of uh, what's what's the what's the word it's it's a uh, like self-deprecating it's like a kind of self-deprecating tension within the movie yeah um so now that we've solved uh 
I don't I don't know what we solved. That that movie was fucking trippy, man. Like, <laughs> uh, I have a question I've been thinking about this entire time, which is, do you think it's possible to have a kind of psychedelic world of wrestling? Not necessarily like a musical version of a wrestling show, but a transportive world where wrestling matches can happen in different settings but is that just like a kung fu show that i'm saying like i don't know how to explain it but it feels as though like one of the real problems with modern wrestling television is that it's confined to a ring in a generic arena where i feel like and this is something we talked about during the black panther episode is there some sort of weird loose narrative that you could put around wrestling as a television show that feels closer to something like this where it's kind of this like kinetic all over the place everything leads to another without i'm trying to think of the best way to put without this. being lost in cleveland yes which underground represented an attempt to do that to untether some of the things that really work about wrestling from the limitations of wrestling. And I think they did a really good job at that for like two and a half seasons. And then it felt like the show lost its way. And now I know a bunch of people are held up under some, some contracts that aren't great. So it's kind of turned into a sad situation. Um, But given what we've seen with Lucha Underground over the last couple of years, I think that that could exist, but I think that that, product would probably have a core audience of like uh, tens of thousands of hardcore fans. You know what I mean? Um, I think that something like that could be done, but not in like, probably not in the mainstream WWE style space. I just think for, for reasons we talked about before, the way they've framed fan expectations on their own and what they've conditioned people to expect and the way they've booked for so many years, I don't really see it working you know, in, in WWE or even in say like AEW when they, when they get their big deal. Like I don't see it happening on that kind of a scale. Yeah. It it almost seems like it would have to be framed as like a Netflix show in the way that glow is a Netflix show and not the way that Lucha underground became a Netflix show. Like from the get go, it feels like it would have to be some sort of streaming platform where, and I think this is important. They would have to release it week to week. They couldn't just dump everything there. I don't think I could be wrong about that. You can't, do, you can't do wrestling that way. It does not work. You can do some form of a content dump, but like your main line narrative, like it, it either needs to be like on a DVD where you've cut and edited and you've just taken the relevant promos. Like some of the stuff that ROH used to do when they would highlight like, oh, here's the Joe versus Punk DVD. You know what I mean? Like, yes. like you, you could do something like that, but you just absolutely cannot do wrestling in a way that's going to grab people doing content dumps. You're freaking better off just on YouTube than doing that, in my opinion. Just, just. No, no, no. And I think I, I'm inclined to agree that it would have to be a weekly show that is like Lucha Underground in the sense that, the place it's in is it's like an underground fighting club at a location. But I think that you could do like a 13 episode version of that show that isn't WMAC masters either. It's it's like a, an actual narrative story structured in the same way, almost like an iron fist would be, but with a wrestling company where you have actual wrestling matches that the crowd is going in and reacting to. 
I, I would be – I think eventually we will get there. Not necessarily Yellow Submarine. I mean, I'm all for it. Like, I would be one of the tens of thousands of people who was watching it. I didn't mean to say that in, like, a cynical, nasty way. I think that a little bit – I I'm not up to date on their current stuff, but I know, like, a few years ago, I think that's what, like, Hood Slam out in the Bay Area was trying to do a little bit, where, like, some of their matches are kind of – tending more towards like the ECW, CZW, but I think they were trying to like create this alternate reality. Like one of their tag teams was the Super Stoner Brothers, who were like two people doing an impression of the Steiner Brothers if they were on drugs during their matches. Like like little things like that. But I, I know Hood Slam still exists, and every couple of years it seems like they're going to gear up to expand, and it just doesn't seem to ever happen. Uh, but that's the one example I can think of or that I know off the top of my head in my kind of limited indie knowledge of, of folks kind of trying to take it that direction. And I think Jakara kind of did something like this when they shut down for a year and they would have matches in like random locations. But it was so it was so fringe experimental that I think it's just a step too far out of the mainstream for it to be a model. But I think you could do a viral marketing campaign like that involving previous star of stars from previous companies. You could not build a company from scratch in the same way. You couldn't have yellow submarine from scratch. You need the stars to go along with it. But I definitely think eventually you will see a television, a glow, a a somewhere between glow and Lucha Underground come out probably from a streaming service because they can guarantee a certain subsection of wrestling fans are going to sign up if they haven't already just to see that shit, especially if there's a star or two they really like. And you would allow, you'd probably be able to get wrestlers who are interested in expanding their acting reels and stuff like that. Like, it seems like it would be something that if you did it correctly, could actually tell, uh, could get a lot of good performers. Yeah, definitely. And I think another another organization that's maybe trying to do kind of what you just said is is WOW on Access, the, the Genie Bus-backed promotion. It's uh, Genie Bus and David, uh, what's his name? The guy who developed the original Glow. Uh, I don't remember his last name. But it's Genie Bus and the guy who did Glow. And they have Tessa Blanchard as their like main act and champion. And I think, as you said, she's kind of there to be the star of the show. And for her, it's like, a really good opportunity to be a star of a show. And I think that they have kind of a blend of some, some indie wrestlers with some level of experience, but they're also training up a bunch of brand new people specifically to be characters on the show, kind of like they did back in the days of glow. So that's one that I I would shoot that maybe people should keep their eyes on. It's wow. And it's on uh, access. Yeah. And they had something where like the middle of the end of the match is kind of like, uh, like they ended the show, I think in the middle of the match or something like that. Like, it seems like they're trying to still tell stories in a way that doesn't break the old systems of how you have matches that end. Cause obviously there were matches that didn't end at the end of a show is how they got you to tune in next week. So you could get the clips of it. Or to but, go to the house show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think that the, these kinds of that eventually someone will come up with an idea that works for that format just because wrestling has become a medium through which stories are like uh in the way that like comedy movies or bohemian rhapsody for instance like musical biopics have had started to happen that uh, more even more frequently than they there's really like a cottage industry within 
movies. And I think eventually wrestling is going to become one of those cultural mediums that we tell stories about our culture through, even if it's not necessarily the original medium itself. And I I feel like that's the next step where you see like a full-blown experimental, almost like psychedelic version uh, or like a trippy journey version of a wrestling show. Sign me up, man. I'm on board. So did you have anything to plug this week? Oh, yes, certainly. Uh, well, as usual, people should follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk, and they should follow the brand, of course, at H-W-E-T-W-Pod. Uh, you should definitely follow uh, The Wrestling Estate as well. That's where some of my written uh, stuff uh, peeks out when I do write about wrestling, and of course, all those great editorial roundtables we do. Uh, we recently got some huge buzz slash blowback for one that we originally released back in December. So good job paying attention, everybody. Uh, but uh, some certain uh, some certain wrestling journalists were miffed that they were left off our list of, of uh, Twitter accounts that that people should follow. <laughs> made it, yes, uh, I won't. I'll say their names off air to you. Uh, but they're, they're, one of them is someone who I think is a really great reporter, but I just, I'll, I'll explain it here actually. It was like the way it was put to me, it was like, okay, who are some accounts that like, if someone was new to wrestling Twitter and really like wanted to get in the middle of it and have access to a bunch of great content, like what direction would you point them? So I wasn't necessarily thinking like, oh, they're going to want to go right to the industry's top journalists. You know what I mean? Like I was thinking more of like, what are the great GIF accounts or who are the really unique content creators out there? Or like, who are the indie wrestlers who maybe aren't nationally famous, but they're like brilliant at Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, so I was going in there for like, I don't want to say the deep cuts, but like the less obvious stuff that people might not know are the gems, but a couple of guys who are quote unquote, real legitimate journalists uh, got their noses all out of joint that they weren't on this list that was published back, you know, two, three months ago. And uh, they made us think about it, which is fun because they're on a bigger platform. So by quote tweeting us to bury us and talk about, you know, how journalistically useless uh, we are, they were actually exposing all of their readers and listeners to all the actual great work that's on the website if you went and checked it out. Uh, so so a lot of fun. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. Follow the show at HWETWPod and uh, follow the wrestling estate. And you can check me out at the Nixer, the T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. You can, like Dave said, check us out at HWETWPod. Uh, you should subscribe to the YouTube channel because uh, around the middle of March, we're going to start posting some excerpts from our previous episodes uh, with some fun stuff at the beginning of the end and the end uh, of me getting bored with Adobe Premiere Pro. Uh, Dave approved, so I think they're good. <laughs> and uh, don't forget to check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us there on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Store. Uh, and yeah, did you have any Pocket Cast news this week? You know what, dude? I actually made my very own pocket cast this week. It's actually super easy. I found the uh, the recipe, as the engineering kids like to say, uh, online over the weekend. It, it's super, super straightforward. What you do is you just get your biggest pair of pants. And um, I mean, I was I was around when big pants were the shit. So I maybe still have some big pants stored away, you know, in a, in a bottom drawer somewhere. So you get out those big pants, you pull them on. And then you find uh, you you find the biggest maglite flashlight, like one of those classic black like cop beating you up flashlights. 
And uh, what you do is you feed it uh, kind of butt side downward into the biggest pocket that you have in your baggy jeans so that the bulb is facing out. Uh, and then when you're like in the club and you really want to impress people and show them what a party monster you are, you flip on the mag light flashlight and the, uh, the glow will emit from your pocket. So you'll literally be casting a beam of light out of your pocket and you can just throw that around the club to like give someone like a spotlight dance, or maybe you've got like a little gobo that you can clip on that. And there's like some cool art that you're like spreading around the wall. So it's a really, really neat thing. And it's really, really easy to do at home. Just type it into Google, how to do your own pocket cast. Amazing. I recommend it to everybody, especially if you're in the club with the lights. Catchy tune, that. I can't seem to get it out of my head. Well, shake it. That's what we've been doing all night. Oh, yeah, it was a great party. Oh, and we brought back lots of lovely souvenirs. Here is the motor. And I've got a little love. And I've got a hole in my pocket. Oh, a hole? Well, half a hole, anyway. I gave the rest to Jeremy. What can he do with half a hole? I fix it to keep his mind from wandering. <laughs> hey, look at John, will ya? What's the matter, John, love? Blue meanies? Newer and bluer meanies have been sighted within the vicinity of this theatre. There's oh. only one way to go out. How's that? Singing! One, two, three, ah! One, two, three, four. Can I have a little more? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I love you. A, B, C, D. Can I bring my friend to tea? E, F, G, H, I, J, I love you. Sail the ship, chop the tree, skip the rope. Look at me. Oh. <laughs>